domesticated plants hold up a mirror to us too, because we can read in their qualities what we value. In the same way you can look at a flower, which evolved to appeal to, uh, to bees, and get a very precise record of what bees find attractive, uh, whether it's scent or, or pattern of light or whatever. Well, you can look at the domesticated plants we depend on, whether it's corn or cannabis or, uh, or opium, and get a pretty precise record of our desires and who we are. And, and so finding ourselves in the mirror of these plants and, and fungi uh, has fascinated me for a long time. And, um, uh, and, you know, I, I'm just very interested in consciousness. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's the great mystery yeah. and, um, and psychedelics, you know, has the potential to teach us things about consciousness, about our, our, our own individual consciousness, but also hopefully consciousness as a phenomenon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Field Tripping, an episode that we are titling, This Is Your Mind on Michael Pollan, because today we have joining us the author and journalist Michael Pollan, who has finally, after a 1.5-year all-out charm offensive on my part, finally relented and agreed to join us on Field Tripping. Michael, before we get started, I wanted to express my gratitude to you on three levels. The first is to thank you for joining us today on the podcast. The second is to thank you for responding to our cold outreach about three years ago when we first started Field Trip yeah. and literally had no idea what we're doing and only really have the vaguest sense now. And finally, for helping me finally, I think, effectively articulate what I think my hope is for Field Tripping as a podcast and, and permit me to explain. I've never prepared or thought about what I was going to talk about more in a podcast than, that, than this one, actually, in part out of respect just for who you are, in part because I want to make this conversation insightful and meaningful, and in part because there's a real part of me that wants to show my chops on creating really good content. Anyways, as I was laughing to myself at 3 a.m. in the morning the other day when I came up with what I think is this very witty title for the episode— what I realized is what I'm actually trying to do with this podcast is to help listeners maybe just briefly see or experience the world through the eyes or mind of another person, hence the name, Your Mind on Michael Pollan. So many podcasts out there are about facts and information or about how to do things differently in your life. I'm not interested in facts. Facts are easy. I'm interested in the unknown, the, the leaps of logic that require creativity because we don't yet know the facts. And getting the thoughts and opinions about those unknowns from people who may have some interesting about ideas about them, like you. Said differently, I want this podcast to help people not doing things differently, but to see things differently. And as a result, just maybe help people be different too. And what I realized is that if nothing else, isn't that what psychedelic experiences are really all about in the first place? So my first question to you today is, have you had a coffee? <laughs> yes uh in fact i'm i'm enjoying an espresso uh, as we speak oh, excellent um, is, is it good this is my one uh daily cup of coffee which okay I, I treasure and a lot of people misinterpreted um the message of the coffee section in this is your mind on plants that since i was taking this fast from coffee for three months 
I was against coffee. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I was on a podcast with Senator Cory Booker and he was like kind of cursing me for having persuaded him to give up coffee. And I said, I, I, I wasn't trying to persuade you to give up coffee. And in fact, if it makes you less effective, I'm going to feel really bad. <laughs> um, but, um, but people take away that message that whatever I do is normative in some ways. Um, I had a very specific reason to give up coffee for that period of time, which was to understand my addiction to it and uh and the effect it was having on my consciousness so i was very happy to go back to coffee <laughs> but do you drink less now no i probably drink more if anything <laughs> uh <laughs> i just appreciate it there you know i don't i'm not having any problems sleeping and if you're if you don't have a problem sleeping there are more benefits than uh deficits to uh to drinking coffee i mean it's it's actually quite good for you know there, there's a lot of evidence that it's protective against various health problems uh and if it doesn't make you jittery or unhappy um i i should say i stop drinking it by noon every day okay um, and then if i drank it deeper into the day i think it would affect my sleep do you follow dave asprey at all uh, in the bulletproof coffee movement are you familiar with that i took a peek at that i didn't i didn't go into uh great depth um that's coffee with fat in it or something yeah the whole idea there is that uh a he's a big believer that coffee is a fantastic thing it's the biggest source of antioxidants around the world and it helps optimize which your is which is an astonishing fact but that's that's less in praise of coffee than an indictment of the american diet <laughs> that we're not getting antioxidants from where we should which is vegetables yeah <laughs> Fair, fair, very fair point. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, he uses coffee. So what's in the Bulletproof coffee? He puts uh, it's coffee. coffee and either MCT or grass-fed butter. And his whole point is, is that it's not just about coffee. Coffee is great, actually. But fasting is really important as well uh, in terms of optimizing. Um, and coffee doesn't break the fat fast and fat doesn't break the fast either. So you can kind of assuage your hunger and get amped up as needed to be super productive throughout the day and still be able to fast. So it's kind of like the best of all worlds. And I, I tried bulletproof coffee. I don't like butter in my coffee. I don't really drink coffee that much either, to be quite honest. And I really like the flavor, but uh, it's, it, it's interesting. And it's interesting watching how coffee goes in vogue and out of vogue. It's good for you. It's bad for you. Um, we have very complicated feelings about coffee. I mean, I, I, I definitely saw that. And I think it has something to do with our general kind of insanity and fanaticism around food and what we take into our bodies. And um, uh, we really have this uh, all or nothing attitude. You know, you're eating, you're either eating meat or you're not eating meat or you're paleo or you're vegan or, and, and this kind of um, very rigid approach um, that it doesn't, isn't, the foundation of a healthy diet i don't think right. um it's 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 eating disorders of another kind i mean they're you know they're less damaging but um i just think it takes up a lot of headspace and um doesn't doesn't uh, benefit people that much i mean i think a relaxed approach to eating is is very important to your health uh, and, and few of us have a relaxed approach to eating these days. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's also interesting how did, did the absence from coffee kind of make your heart grow fond? Did the separation give you a newfound appreciation? Oh for yeah. It? I was really unhappy off of co coffee. I mean, I, one of the things I learned was that what I think of as my normal baseline consciousness, that transparency, that nor, you know, that normality was in fact a product of coffee yeah and 
in the absence of it, I felt like a slightly different person. And that um, it made me realize that my baseline consciousness was caffeinated consciousness. And, you know, I've been drinking coffee since I was like 10 years old. I got a very early start. Oh, wow. And, um, well, it was sort of a time I could hang out with my dad. My dad worked crazy hours and seldom got home before he had a long commute. Uh, and he seldom got home before I went to bed when I was a kid. And so getting up in the morning and having coffee with him was, you know, was kind of a, a great ritual. Mm, and, nice. uh, and he was a huge coffee drinker. I mean, he would drink it all day long. Oh, wow. Um, so I developed a taste for it pretty early. That's awesome. But, um, but the absence of it did make my heart grow fonder and, um, but it made me appreciate its power and that this is a drug. This is a psychoactive drug. It's a subtle one because unless you take too much of it, it does feel transparent, uh, unlike a lot of other drugs, which, which you can tell how they're changing consciousness. Um, it feels very normal. Mm -hmm. Um, but in fact, the, the the kind of focus we have, the ability to um, block out things and concentrate on one thing at a time, those are all gifts of coffee. Yeah. And um, and in its absence, you really feel their absence. And um, so it was a it was a really valuable lesson. And it's something I, I I do recommend to anyone who has a has a relationship to a psychoactive substance or or any habit is to take a break every now and then. You know, the Lent idea yeah. uh, is a good idea um, because it teaches you things about yourself and about the substance and that it allows you to be more mindful in whatever you're going to do. And, you know, now I'm back on coffee and it's a routine, but I'm, I'm definitely more mindful and appreciative of it than I was before I had that fast. But I was also doing it to write about it. I mean, yeah. I was reporting from a frontier of consciousness or <laughs> um, and um, and it's... You know, in a lot of my journalism, I have experiences so I can report about them. Yeah. Usually they involve taking a psychoactive substance. This involved abstaining from a psychoactive substance, which actually proved to be much harder. Did you like the person you were not on a coffee? <laughs> no, he was kind of dull and sluggish <laughs> and uh, he wasn't as sharp. He, he couldn't find the right word as easily and he sure had trouble writing for <laughs> at least for a few weeks I'm sure um, that was a, that was a big challenge yeah. um and then he was envious of people enjoying their coffees and uh you know tried to get as much out of mint tea as he could or chamomile <laughs> but um but as i i told myself when i was trying to write um you know what work of genius has ever been produced on chamomile tea <laughs> um I, i've yet to see it <laughs> You never know. But. And there have been a lot of works of genius produced on, on coffee. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Balzac would be a, one good example. Diderot. I mean, many of the, many of the writers of the Enlightenment um, were um, serious coffee addicts. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, no guarantee, though. I didn't, it's not like I wrote a work of genius on, uh, on coffee. I don't know. I think some people... But I got are, closer than I would have without it. I, I don't know. I mean, I was going to save this for later in the podcast, but, uh, you know, when, when I was preparing for it, I put it on social saying like, hey, Michael Pollan's coming on the podcast. Would you like to ask any questions or share anything? And, and the consistent feedback, there were some questions, but the consistent feedback from the small number of people who responded, uh, and it's probably not a very diverse group, or just that, like, you know, uh, please tell him that his books help save my life, or please tell Michael that uh, uh. reading how to change my mind, how to, how to change your mind, um, you know, inspired me to pursue a particular path. So, uh, you know, I don't know how you define genius, but I would say that that's a pretty good indication of, of a work of genius. 
Well, you're you're too kind. But I mean, it is, I, I do. It's humbling to me how many people tell me that that book did change their life yeah. and, and led to. Uh, and when they tell me that, my immediate question is, well, for the better, I hope, <laughs> not for the worse. And for most people, it was for the better. I can point to one or two for whom it wasn't. Oh, but, really? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, uh, when things go wrong in psychedelic experience, and it's important to to remind people that they do go wrong yeah. uh, sometimes. Um, I hear from people, and I, I hear some, you know, some some sobering stories from time to time. Really? Yeah, I mean, people who have had um, uh, bad things happen, um, bad trips, really bad trips, uh, the surfacing of trauma they didn't know how to process. Um, it's often people who were not guided or not guided well. Um, it's a consequential thing to do. And there is a kind of roll of the dice because um, you don't know what's going to come up and you don't know whether you're going to be able to deal with what's going to come up. And then there have been actually the occasional, uh, I've heard from a couple people who, um, oh God, I heard from one mother whose son uh, committed suicide in the midst of a psychedelic trip, a college student. Jesus. Um, and th- these are heartbreaking emails to get. And someone who lost their father, who died during a, a guided psilocybin session. Really? Um, probably, and you know, the result of a heart problem um, that wasn't, that they weren't aware of. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, it can be a big experience that would, like any big experience would put strain on your heart. But, you know, she never really found out what happened. But um, so, yeah, I think people should, um, I don't mean to scare people unduly, but it is, it's a big step and you should, you know, make sure you're healthy and you, you disclose all your medical issues to a guide and, um, and be prepared for what can be a, a trying experience and, and minimize risk by being guided. I think that's the most important thing. Sure. Have any of those emails ever made you question like whether you've opened a Pandora's box that you didn't really intend to? No, I mean, I think I, I do have a feeling that, um, we are in this period of irrational exuberance around psychedelics and that as happens, especially in American culture, we tend to go overboard. It's all or nothing. You know, these giant swings of the pendulum. And now there are many people who think that this is a cure all, you know, and that this will take care of everyone's problems. Everyone should do it. And, um, I, you know, so I think that, I think, you know, we're losing our perspective a little bit and it'll be important to restore it. I mean, there are, you know, it's, it, it doesn't solve everybody's problems. Yeah. You know, there are people who have, uh, you know, I, I have the testimony of many people whose lives were changed in positive direction. I met two vets, uh, two veterans, uh, yesterday, a, a SEAL team guy and another Iraq vet. And um, their lives were saved by psychedelic experience, um, by ayahuasca in one case, psilocybin Mm -hmm. in another, these people who were processing trauma for years and, uh, and had now devoted themselves to making this available to other veterans. And those, those stories are common and incredibly heartwarming. Um, But, you know, for some people it's, it's not the right thing. It's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and then there are people who are just, you know, are feeling pressure to do it who don't want to do it. And, um, you know, because yeah. of it's become so current. So I just worry that things, you know, that there's an over enthusiasm and that we lose, we lose perspective. Um, 
and that perhaps people who are suffering from mental illness that will not be helped by psychedelics, um, you know, various forms of personality disorder. It isn't really clear that it's useful for people in that situation or schizophrenics. Um, so yeah, so, I mean, I do, I do feel, um, uh, it's important to sound a cautionary note. Sure. And, and, and there are problems in the field. I mean, we're learning about therapy abuse there, you know, there have been cases of, of, uh, therapists who've, who've abused their power, um, now that happens in all forms of therapy. There's a long history of that in psychotherapy, but there are particular vulnerabilities when the patient has taken a psychedelic, uh, especially MDMA yeah. with the way that it um, increases this sense of a bond. You know, it, it, it increases what the Freudians would call transference, you know, the, a, a powerful relationship between the, the, uh, the patient and the doctor or the therapist that, that an unscrupulous therapist can take advantage of. Yep. Uh, and, and that has happened, um, both above ground and below ground. Um, so that's a risk we need to be alert, alert to. Um, sure. so anyway, I, you know, I do feel it's important, uh, to, uh, um, sound cautionary notes about this. Yeah, no, I think that's entirely fair. And I, I appreciate the, the balance of the conversation because I think you're right. Uh, it's, it's the nature of, call it Western society, uh, to overemphasize and then, you know, uh, have a, a slingshot reaction the other way very often. And I would hate to see that happen too, yep. uh, that, you know, one of the reasons I think it's important to acknowledge these problems is that when they come up, that they don't have an outsized influence either. I mean, that we, that the pendulum doesn't swing back. We saw that in the sixties, of course, sure. um, up till about 1965. Uh, you would not believe how promotional the press was around psychedelics. Even in mainstream magazines like Time and Life yeah. were, were actively promoting LSD. And then the culture turned on a dime yeah. and you could not read a positive article. And, you know, um, the baby went out with the bathwater and, and research stopped for 30 years because of that backlash. Yeah. And, uh, and think what we would know now had that research continued the whole time. So, um, you know, I'm concerned about that too. And, um, uh, that if people are only hearing good things, when they start hearing the opposite, they'll think that, oh, the whole thing is a fraud or, uh, misbegotten. And, yeah. um, and I think that would be a shame because I, I have no doubt that the potential to relieve a great deal of human suffering, uh, uh, is with these with these substances when they're used properly. Yeah, it's, a, it's something I want to go into a little bit more uh, a little bit later. I had a couple of questions specifically about that. Um, you shared a, a very lovely story about drinking coffee with your father when you were 10. My story is not nearly as interesting, well, and not nearly as thoughtful about being a kid, but I have here that when I was a kid, about six or seven years old, I remember my grandmother referred to one of our dogs as being a shit disturber. And I remember spending the rest of the day going around <laughs> telling everyone I could about that fact because it gave me the first ever legitimate reason to use the word shit. I think I even the picked up shit, the phone yeah. and called people to tell them that. <laughs> anyway. I have a license for my grandmother. <laughs> totally. Uh, one of the things that came up as I was preparing for this podcast is that I think you and I actually share a very similar characteristic and, and maybe I'm overhyping myself. But I think you used the word uh, or the expression exploring, quote, edgy ideas. Either way, I think it, it's at, at its core, it's about trying to stir things up on, on some level. And, and what makes, I think, you and I 
both good shit disturbers besides being beautifully bald is the fact that we can do and say things that some may find provocative or offensive, but that there is something about each of us that makes it somehow less scandalous uh, or, or less offensive <laughs> to people. And so with that said, I'm wondering, like, what set you on your path to becoming a journalist in the first place? Uh, the path to start down, you know, what's turned you into the effective poster boy for exploring one's consciousness. And, and just before you answer that, I was also thinking that, like, the whole process of journalism in some ways is pretty psychedelic if I was thinking about it, which is, you know, you go out there, you offer insights, and then you hold a mirror up to somebody, right? To see the world in a, in a different way. And it was just a really cool connection I saw being like, yeah, that is kind of the essence of psychedelics. But um, that's a side note. What, what kind of puts you on the path to, to journalism and then specifically into um, exploring consciousness on the, on the, in the way you have? Yeah, well, on that first point, I think what journalism and psychedelics have in common is uh, journalism strives to create new perspectives on familiar things right. and put the camera at an angle that you haven't had it before uh, or take the camera into a place it hasn't gone before. Um, and that is uh, definitely parallel to a psychedelic experience. Um, you know, I certainly didn't set out to become a poster boy for consciousness change. Um, and in fact, I wrote about other topics yeah. uh, before I got to this. Um, but my what really got me serious about writing, I was always interested in literature. I studied literature in school. I was an English major in college. I was a magazine editor for many years before I was a writer. I just loved being around writing and writers and uh, I thought publishing was just an exciting thing to do. I love seeing work I'd done in print. Um, you know, there, there are very few highs, like getting the first bound copy of your book, mm -hmm. uh, you know, arrive by FedEx and hold it in your hands. It, it's still, even in this digital age that the physicality of that experience is, is truly thrilling. And I've had it, you know, nine times now, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not tired of it yet. Um, but um, my writing really began in my garden when I started kind of seriously gardening. And this was in my late 20s, early 30s. Uh, we bought uh, a farmhouse um, outside of New York, about two hours away, and spent weekends there. I was working as a magazine editor in New York at Harper's Magazine. Um, and um, in the course of gardening, things were happening and I was learning things um, that I thought had something to teach uh, or a new perspective on our relationship to the natural world and other plants. Right. And I started writing a series of essays about my adventures and misadventures in the garden and, and, and kind of drawing lessons uh, about the human relationship to the natural world and other species. And my love of plants and my sense that I was in this reciprocal relationship with them that uh i was certainly manipulating them to get what i wanted but but suddenly it dawned on me they were manipulating me too to get what they wanted which was of course habitat and care and protection from pests and all the things i was doing for them um that relationship really is at the heart of all my writing since um and so I, uh, my first book was this series of essays. It's called Second Nature. It was published in 1991. And um, it really was about what I was learning about our relationship to nature. And I, I, I recently had occasion to reread it because I did a book on tape. It had never been an audio. It came out before there were audio books. Okay. 
And I was stunned to see that um, so much of my thinking, at least in a germinal form, about food and agriculture and consciousness change and psychedelics was there in this germinal form Mm. um, to the extent where I'm like, God, I haven't had a new idea since (laughs) 1991. Um, But of course, they weren't recognizable as such. They were seeds, not not plants yet. And um, so that interest in looking at our relationship to nature, not as one of dominance, but as reciprocity, um, and symbiosis, which of course it is, um, co-evolution. I mean, we co-evolve with, with this suite of domesticated species, both plants and animals, um, led to my interest in food and agriculture. Right. Um, agriculture, you know, the, the farmer faces all the challenges the gardener does uh, in terms of getting what he or she wants from nature while nature needs to get what it it needs. Um, and... Um, and so I, I wrote for many years about food and agriculture, and um, that was my beat. Um, and then along the way, I started reading about this research going on about psychedelics. And I had had a long interest in this very peculiar use of plants we have. I mean, people understand we use plants to feed ourselves. We use them for beauty, but we also use them to change consciousness, uh, whether you're talking about coffee or, or ayahuasca or um, uh, coca, any number, um, opium. Mm-hmm. Um, and that struck me as a very interesting use of plants that I needed to explore. And I began that exploration earlier than people realize in a book called uh, The Botany of Desire, which came out in 2001 and has a long chapter on cannabis. Right. And, I, and I also had a history of growing cannabis uh, uh, before it was... Uh, legal to do and um and reflecting on you know that as a strategy of a plant um gratifying the human desire to change consciousness is a great way to get your seeds spread around the world and uh and cannabis figured that out you know thousands and thousands of years ago um so so to me it's all a very organic process of um exploring the human relationship to the natural world in this realm where we're not merely observers uh, or spectators as we are in a lot of nature writing, but we're active participants. Yeah. Um, and in the, and, and, you know, you talk about holding up a mirror, um, domesticated plants hold up a mirror to us too, because we can read in their qualities, what we value in the same way you can look at a flower which evolved to appeal to, uh, to bees and get a very precise record of what bees find attractive, uh, whether it's scent or, or pattern of light or whatever. Well, you can look at the domesticated plants we depend on, whether it's corn or cannabis or, uh, or opium, and get a pretty precise record of our desires and who we are. And, and so finding ourselves in the mirror of these plants and, and fungi uh, has fascinated me for a long time. And, um, uh, and, you know, I, I'm just very interested in consciousness. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's the great mystery and, um, and psychedelics, you know, has the potential to teach us things about consciousness, about our, our, our own individual consciousness, but also hopefully consciousness as a phenomenon, um, where it comes from, why we have it, 
um, you know, it's, it, that's an, you know, why, why do we need it? I mean, why couldn't everything we do be automatic? You know, why don't we just run algorithms? Uh, we do a lot of unconscious processing as it is. We know that conscious awareness is a very small percentage of the activity going on in our brains. Um, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg. Um, so why is there any tip? Why isn't it all submerged? Yeah. I don't think we know. Are plants conscious? Well, that's an interesting question. I've written about plant intelligence. They're definitely intelligent. I think it depends on whether you're defining conscious as aware of the environment um, or aware that you're aware of the environment. You know, that second order uh, Mm -hmm. self-consciousness. I don't, I I see no evidence they're self-conscious. There is a lot of evidence they are conscious. Um, that they respond to stimuli in a way that suggests they're taking in a lot of information and processing it um, without brains. And that, that's interesting too, that they're, that neurons may not be the only way to do this. Um, and that plants suggest that um, there are other ways to, you know, I mean, there, there've been very interesting experiments showing that plants can learn. You can do the kind of Pavlovian experiments of, uh, exposing them to a stimulus and, um, and they will come to anticipate it and react in a particular way. Um, so I think we still have a lot to learn. I, I do have a huge respect for plants and their, um, and their capabilities, but I'm not willing to say they're conscious or intentional, right. um, in what they do. Yeah. One of my favorite moments on this podcast so far was actually with, um, uh, Matthew Johnson from Johns Hopkins and, um, yeah. The line he said, which stuck in my head and has stuck in my head since, which is amazing because, you know, being sleep deprived with young kids and all that kind of stuff, nothing sticks in my head. Nothing but sticks. <laughs> his, his line was, it takes a magical level of thinking to believe that consciousness derives from an arbitrary level of complexity. Uh, and I was like, that's quite profound, actually. Like, where is the line from conscious to unconscious? And why is there that line between what is conscious and unconscious? And I don't have an answer, but we were we were exploring the concepts of panpsychism, you know, whether it's all materialist, you know, I was having a conversation with them. Um, some friends who who believe that our consciousness is a byproduct of, of just the, what's happening in our brain, that it's that there's no free will per se, um, that everything we perceive as free will is actually predetermined, but we just, because there's a space and time uh, between uh, the recognition and the action, um, we perceive it as free will. It's, it's a super fascinating conversation. I don't know if you have any yeah, particular I don't, I, thoughts I've on read that. that too, and I don't know if I buy it. I mean, you know, there's all, I mean, the, the idea that thought could affect anything, right? This immaterial thing called a thought. Um, and that before you've thought it, um, the decisions have already been made. And they, they did these libid experiments that, you know, purported to show that it was, I forget how many microseconds before you press the button and, and resolve to press the button that, in fact, there was an action potential that was in motion. But look at, look at thoughts that come from outside you. In other words, Donald Trump puts a thought in your head that makes you do something. Yeah. Um, is that, how is that predetermined and is it predetermined in his brain or your brain? Yeah. Um, I mean, consciousness is influenced by other consciousnesses and I think that that's a force you have to look at also. Right. Um, so I'm not sure I buy that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair point. I hadn't considered that. But I, I think what Matthew said is interesting. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, most explanations of consciousness finally resort to some kind of magic. 
you know, it's an emergent property of a complex system. What does emergent mean? I mean, <laughs> it's it's a little hand wavy, it seems to me. Uh, or panpsychism, which is a is a solves the problem philosophically, but then you have to think about what kind of experience does a particle have? Um, and uh, it's such a it's it's such a primitive form of consciousness as to be something else it seems to me so mm-hmm. I, I i don't know there are not a lot of satisfying expl- explanations out there it's just a reminder of what an extraordinary um, uh, miracle consciousness is and um to contemplate a world without human consciousness is 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 truly mind-blowing um and that may that may come about um uh you know if we manage to uh, extinguish ourselves as a species. Um, it's very true. But, you know, we do represent nature becoming aware of itself, um, which is a big responsibility that we're not taking very seriously. Yeah, that's a, a very, very good point. Um, I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to chew on that and come back to that question. See if that uh, sticks. Yeah, no, that, that's very <laughs> interesting. Um, uh, Going back to the just you becoming a journalist and, and writing, uh, I was struck by your prayer uh, during the Wachuma ceremony and, and uh, your mind on plans to be less in your head and more in your heart. And another thing that mm. um, really struck me as I was reading it was when you experienced the ugliness of letters on the page. Um, and to me, what came up in, in that moment was the kind of recognition that reading as as sublime and complex as it can be is only really in our head, not really in, in our emotions. Um, and you know, truthfully as two bald Jewish, uh, two bald men of Jewish descent, um, you know, the mind becomes more active because the heart is not feeling how much has that stuck with you? You know, to me, that seemed like one of the most poignant moments in in your experience, Mm -hmm. at least that you conveyed in the book. uh, And I'm just wondering where, where that sits with you now. Well, most of my psychedelic experiences have taken me to that place of of feeling more emotionally connected and more emotionally open and, and available. And it's really one of the things I prize about the experience. Mm-hmm. I do live in my head a lot of the time. Most writers do. And um, and so we're at a kind of remove. And the, the the revulsion I felt about print, which was such a weird thing for me, because I, you know, I just breathe reading. I mean, I love to read. I, I read as a almost a physiological necessity. I mean, it is a kind of breathing for me. Um, Was this sense that those little marks on the page are human created. They're, they're not anything in and of themselves. You have to refer to a whole symbol system to, to bring in reality that way. And yet here was reality without that mediation. Uh, And this was on a experience, the mescaline experience that I described. It wasn't, uh, Wachuma at that point. Um, and I just wanted to put down the book and I don't think many people can read on psychedelics. I I don't see a lot of reading getting done, (laughs) but, um, uh, but that unmediated encounter with nature, with, you know, a bowl of apricots with, there was so much, uh, that was so much deeper than anything you could read going on around me that it seemed like what a waste of that consciousness to try to spend it uh, making sense of marks on a page um, that were in fact describing things in nature. Um, uh, why not go right to the source? So it, it is, it is that, you know, there's this deep 
drive we have for unmediated reality. Um, and so much stands in our way. Um, but, you know, if you think about Thoreau and Emerson and that whole tradition, John Muir of American writers, contact, contact, you know, I mean, they want, they want to um, reach the, 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 the hardness of the ground and, the, and the, the beauty of the flower without anything, you know, intervening. Yet, of course, mm-hmm. there's always something intervening, but, but you can remove a bunch of layers on psychedelics and, um, uh, uh, and get closer, I think, to the, um, to the, you know, the sensory truth of the matter. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Has it has it changed your relationship to reading at all? Um, that experience, or uh, did you go back to it you just know, like caffeine? I go back to it. I I find that c- compared to some other people I know who've who've whose lives have been changed by psychedelics, I tend to go back to baseline. Yeah, you know, I have these ideas in my head, and it, and it's a good uh, reminder uh, to get away from reading sometimes and go outside and. Um, and it's made me more mindful both of the process and of the opposite of the process, you know, having to do working with words all the time. But, but it's not like it fundamentally changed my relationship to, uh, um, to what I do. Um, I don't think, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think the changes in my life have been still, you know, around the margins. I mean, learning important things about myself, psychologically, about relationships, um, about what I value. I mean, all that does stay with me, but I don't feel like there was a before and after and I was, I was a fundamentally different person. Oh, I appreciate that. Maybe I haven't taken enough. <laughs> there you go. I, I, <laughs> Maybe I need higher doses. <laughs> there you go. And I think it's important though. And, and uh, this is one of those things that I think gets lost in, in, um, you know, the, the way communication happens these days, particularly around the media, which is it, it tends to focus on the extreme instances. It's the military veterans who have experienced things that virtually yeah. no one should experience. It's, it's Lamar Odom, who is so broken to the point of, of being dead, quite literally. Um, or it's the Joe Rogans, uh, you know, the, the, the Silicon Valley bro dude types. Um, and it just doesn't relate to most people. But I think as people start to understand and appreciate that you can have very magical, intense psychedelic experiences and still come back to just about the same, maybe slightly different is really important because those slight differences over the course of time, you know, if you think about like something moving off just 1% over the course of time, yeah, it's far away from where it started and that, and that matters. Yeah. And there are people too who say, I don't want to change. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, and we have experiences that are really valuable that don't necessarily, you know, create right angle change. Right. Um, and, and those experiences are valuable too, without question. Um, I think, you know, it's so much has to do with your intention in, in doing this and whether you're trying to fix a problem, uh, or not. And, um, and, you know, to the extent I was trying to fix a problem, it was around this idea of, of, um, opening myself up. I mean, I'm a very forward looking person. I am a worrier. I, I, I dwell in the future more than I'd like to. And, um, and I have learned on psychedelics, some tools for, um, uh, occupying more of a present tense moment. And, and in fact, one of the, I would say one of the most lasting changes has been the way psychedelics has opened up a meditation practice for me and, and as it has for many people. Um, it's kind of a, a logical way to um, 
fold psychedelic experience into your life and reconnect with the insights you've had on the experience is through meditation. Um, and, and I think psychedelic experience makes it, it, it's a bad word to use, easier to meditate, um, more comprehensible, uh, that the process makes more sense Mm -hmm. after psychedelic experience. And I remember interviewing Judd Brewer, who is a psychiatrist now at Brown medical school who studies meditation and is, and is also interested in psychedelics. And, uh, he said to me once that I could imagine a time where we, we would use psychedelic experience as, as part of the process of learning how to meditate, of beginning that practice, because it gives people kind of a preview of where you're trying to get in meditation. Um, that sort of distance on your own thoughts, that, um, that, that level of focus, um, and I think he's right. I think there's something to it. Um, and it's no accident that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the people who brought Buddhism to America, um, began themselves with psychedelic experience. Um, and not just Buddhism, Hinduism too. Um, mm-hmm. that if you want to turn, psychedelics are not going to be a practice. Um, it's not something people are going to do every day or every week. Um, so then how do you sustain what you're learning from it. Well, meditation, I think, is the is the technology for doing that uh, for a lot of yep. people. And it has been for me. So I, I've gotten much more serious about meditation. And, and I often use kind of riddles that came to me in psychedelic experience, odd moments, odd scenes as something to kind of run through my head when I'm meditating. And it actually can bring, bring back the experience. People, I, I think people don't make enough of the fact that a lot of psychedelic experience is meditation and that we dwell on the kind of dramatic climax of the event uh, where we have, you know, surrendered control of our mind to whatever movie is playing. Um, And that is an interesting and revealing part of the experience. But then there's this long denouement, which might be half of the trip where you're not, you, you've regained some control or of your attention. You can decide what to think about. You can do work, uh, mental mm-hmm. work. Um, and it is a form of meditation and a very valuable one because you're, you're really not easily distracted. And, um, and it's that period of the trip that I think meditation can represent uh, uh, some continuity with. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's exactly right. It's kind of like uh, working out, right? Like when you when you exercise, lifting the weights is the hard part. But the I think the real kind of magic opportunity is in the stretching and the cooling afterwards. That's when the body starts <laughs> to translate that into yeah. something. And and you're right after that that peak experience and, and the after effect when you're just left with your thoughts and, and nothing's intruding is is where I think a lot of the the real magic happens and say, yeah, no, it's a precious, it's a precious part of the experience and doesn't get written about or talked about nearly enough. Yeah, that's fair. I'm going to ask you to put on your forward looking hat for a second and and maybe something to worry about as well. But you you talked in um, your mind on plants quite a bit about how caffeine fueled, you know, was a fuel for a capitalist world uh, that kind of evolved. And in some ways it's very persuasive. That's the case. What do you think the world would look like if it was psilocybin as opposed to caffeine? You're blowing my mind, Ronan. Uh, (laughs) 
I don't. Well, first of all, I don't see a daily use of psilocybin. Um, it, it doesn't fold into um, uh, modern life as uh, easily. I mean, the, the genius of caffeine is how it can be um, woven into the fabric of a, of a functional working life in a way that I don't think psilocybin can. Psilocybin will always be the vacation from um, uh, routine life. Um, a world in which many people were having psilocybin experience, would it be a different world and how would it be different is a really interesting question. And that turns on the fact that um, is does um, psilocybin change belief or behavior or values in a predictable way? Um, and I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Compared right. to compared to coffee, to caffeine, compared to a lot of drugs, cocaine or um, opium, the effects of psychedelics are much more variable. So while, you know, the effect of caffeine on everybody has certain things in common and you can, you can measure them, you know, increase of focus, improvement of memory, um, uh, imp- improvement of wakefulness and endurance. I mean, physiological effects that affect consciousness. It's hard to say the same thing about psilocybin, um, just because uh, it's, it's a mental catalyst. You know, the pharmacological effects are kind of light in a way. Um, it's, it's a catalyst for things in your mind, and they can go in any number of different ways. So there is, a, there is an idea out there that, um, and there's some very sketchy science behind it, that, uh, you know, psilocybin experience increases um, openness, uh, the personality domain of openness, that it uh, increases what's called nature connectedness, you know, how much mm-hmm. you feel a part of nature, that it reduces neuroticism and other, you know, negative personality traits. What will um, all the Jews out there do? I know, I know. It'd be a real <laughs> threat. Um, uh, I think they should watch out. Um, but um, this research is really preliminary. Um, yeah. and the sample of people who've taken psychedelics or have volunteered to be in trials is not a representative sample of the population by any means. Um, And my guess is those people who felt more nature connected were already well inclined toward the environment or toward, you know, they liked nature. They thought about nature. Um, what happens if you give psychedelics to people who are, you know, coal industry executives? Are, are they going to have the same reaction? Or it could be that psychedelics are an amplifier of what's already there. And that means mm-hmm. it could send society off just intensification of trends that are already there, both good and bad, if lots of people took it. So I don't think we know enough to answer that question is the honest answer. That's exactly the kind of research I think we need to do. I think we need to take a um, demographically representative group of people politically um, with regard to nature, attitudes, um, demographics, and, and, and see if they do respond in a consistent way. If this trait of openness uh, can be found in many different kinds of people of this trait of nature connectedness or or reduction in uh, egotism or narcissism um, all these things we 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 fervently hope psychedelics would encourage in society before we 
put it in the water supply, I, I think we should do some more research and see um, yeah. if indeed it would give us the society we want to see. Um, this actually is, you know, I'm, I'm involved with this uh, Center for uh, the Study of Psychedelics at, at, uh, at Berkeley, where we're not focused on clinical work, but basic science and social science around psychedelics. And this is something we want to study is um, the belief change and the behavior change that that uh, comes out of, of psychedelics. Is that real? Uh, in what direction does it take people? Is there any consistency to it? Or is it all an amplification of, of prior um, attitudes? Um, right. And so until we know the answer, it's, it's very hard to, uh, it's very hard to offer a, a persuasive take. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be as uh, skeptical as I possibly can. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And uh, I think that's a, a very fair answer. It's, it's, it's something even ignoring the openness traits or, you know, the creativity or nature connectedness traits. It's something that I was thinking about quite a bit when I was at the code conference in, in LA, um, a couple of months ago. And I actually got to talk to Sam Harris a, a little bit about this. And my question is like, to what end, to what end is if psychedelics are as effective at treating trauma and depression, just only on those two narrow categories, if, if we can elevate human consciousness and just eliminating those, how does society get different? Like what, what is different about what we're doing? Where does it end? Where do we go? You know, and, and what Sam and I talked about is he talked about how human biology is not meant to live in peak experience, that we can go into peak experience, but we're always going to dip back into some right. normal Well, by definition, and, right? I mean, peak experience is, is exceptional. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of like, if if we're always going to swing back to something that in that gap between peak and normal, there's always going to be a space for disappointment, disillusionment in my mind. Uh, and I was like, so to what to what end is this? To what end? If if all the promise and hope of psychedelics actually comes to be true, and there's no certainty about that, and all your cautionary mm -hmm. tales earlier, I think, are valid. So what difference does it make? And um, how does the world look different? And what I kind of came back to is the only real answer we can give is, and this is, uh, I'm going to pose it back to you, is it really comes back to what do we want it to be? That is that is the fundamental question, is that it's not just being a passive participant in this great experiment, but it's being a proactive narrator of the outcomes that we want to achieve. And so I'm going to... Yeah, I think there's a lot of trying to, to help me write that. If we, if we want to use psychedelics, let's say, to solve the environmental problem, crisis, um, if enough people sought the experience for that purpose, they would be a lot more likely to get that result. But they have to start there. And there yep. are many people not interested in solving the environmental crisis. And um, so, so I, I see psychedelics having the potential to amplify an intention like that. Um, but that's that's not a shared intention. So, you know, we have a very polarized society and the hope would be that this would reduce polarization and, and, and pull everybody in the same direction. Um, and I, I fear that may be naive. But even, you know, taking what Sam Harris said about peak experience, there is the residue of the experience too. And that makes a contribution. I mean, let's say if one of the features of psychedelic experiences is just a slight softening of ego um uh, a little less identification with ego um 
that, you know, could have a beneficial social effect. Um, so much of, so much of what's gotten us into trouble is egotistical thinking, right? The, the, the objectifying of the other, um, you know, the other appears very different, differently under psychedelics. Very often, um, you suddenly realize, um, or at least I realize now I'm a gardener and I was inclined in this direction that, you know, plants have a kind of personhood too, and they have a subjectivity and you respect things that have a subjectivity and, Mm -hmm. and you manipulate things that you think are just objects. Um, so let's say that that's a common, um, formulation or, or something that people have insight into that could be helpful, but you know, we have to figure out how universal it is. Yeah. Yeah, one one of my my first experience actually with psilocybin. One of the aspects of it was that uh, we were in a, a bit of a dispute with a previous employer, and uh, even though what we thought we had um, acted perfectly rationally and maturely, um, they were still annoyed with us, and, and we were trying to comprehend it. But we were trying to comprehend it from a, a logical perspective, and and what we realized is that a lot of emotions are not necessarily logical, and and I felt a deep sense of empathy of like oh, they're genuinely angry, you know, not super angry. It wasn't going to be an explosive affair, but they felt genuinely hurt and pissed off. Uh, And I could feel that. I could feel it viscerally, not just being like, well, the math doesn't make sense for why they're angry. The fact is that that they're angry and feeling that gave me a whole level of empathy for what they're going through. And it really enabled um, resolution to that conversation. And I think probably if nothing else, the greater integration between emotion and thinking, right? Getting out of our heads quite so much, not ignoring science, not ignoring data, but pairing it better with emotions and instincts to make much more what I'd call intelligent decisions, which is the integration of both of those features of experience. Um, could go a lot long way. Well, I to, think, to and I think things. MDMA has that potential too. And one of, and, and the yep. kinds of experience or, or, um, uh, I don't know what you call them, but, but projects to use MDMA to resolve conflict, you know, Rick Doblin's always talking about sending MDMA to the Middle East and you know, yep. he sent it to the arms negotiators in Russia once. Um, <laughs> and you know, when you have people, uh, or, or simply in couples, couples struggling with their marriages, um, it seems to allow people to um, hear hear threatening ideas without getting defensive, talk about difficult issues without getting um, too overly upset. I mean, it's amazing the kind of conversations you can have um, without the usual uh, defenses popping up. Um, yeah, and that that may have a political utility um, that would be fascinating to explore. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, another thing that struck me in, in, in your mind on plants is you described uh, your problems as being, quote, weightless uh, in the chapter on mescaline. And I thought that was a really interesting choice of words. I mean, if you have insight and want to explain it, that's great. But in many ways, I can imagine in, in the Middle East conflict, if all of those histories and traumas that people care, carry become weightless, then it becomes a much easier conversation to, to cross paths. Yeah. And if not weightless, a little lighter. Um, and, uh, you know, a little more and, and people becoming a little more empathetic, um, and also be able to express their anger without making the other person, uh, flip out. Um, you know, that, that you can just take anger out and look at it. And, um, 
uh, and again, going back to that word, have some, have, have a different perspective on it and not, not go to your, your normal place of, uh, of defensiveness. Yep. I had a couple more questions on, on journalism and, and then I'll let you go. But, um, you mentioned in your conversation with Noah Feldman, thank you for pointing me to that interview, uh, that you felt a bit uncomfortable becoming an advocate after the omnivores dilemma, because you grew up, I guess, in a, in a school of thought around journal journalism, the journalists shouldn't have opinions, but we now live in an era where uh, I saw a headline that many Americans believe Joe Rogan is more trustworthy than Anthony Fauci. Uh, and I'm wondering what you feel about the state of information and media in this world and, and how do we start to address that? Because the polarization you talk about, it, I don't think there's any doubt about that, but the the insidiousness of it is the the media platforms that we have right now don't lend themselves to anything in terms of reconciling those polarizations. And as, as a journalist and someone who's very thoughtful uh, about this particular subject, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I don't know the way out of it. I mean, we have gone from a period where there were certain sources of information that carried authority, uh, mainstream newspapers, um, you know, television networks, the big three networks and their news divisions um, to one where everyone has their own media that reinforces what they believe. Um, I think that the advent and success of Fox News has been one of the most destructive things that's happened in this country. Um, A moment came in the 1980s uh, when President Reagan was president where Rupert Murdoch, who is not an American, uh, sought and was granted a license uh, to own TV stations. There was a rule that you had to be an American to do that. Uh, at the same time, uh, we had regulations, uh, something called the Fairness Doctrine and the Equal Time Rule that required television stations, since they were using public airwaves, to present alternative points of view, equal time for candidates. Um, and we dismantled that system. And we are still paying the price. Um, and, and the price is this retreat into information bubbles, uh, where people Mm -hmm. can, uh, support whatever they think, uh, where there's no consensus on fact, where the New York times or the Washington post is treated as, uh, as, um, partisan as Fox news or Joe Rogan. Um, and that, that, that is a very dangerous and destructive situation. Uh, If you can't agree on a set of facts, it's very hard to have a democracy. Um, And um, so I don't know what the way out of it is. Um, In terms of advocacy, you know, my journalism has brought me to that place on a couple occasions. I mean, I have views around food and agriculture that at a certain point it would have been disingenuous for me to pretend I didn't have. I believe that journalism can be opinionated, yet nevertheless, there are ethical constraints. One is accuracy. Everything I publish has to be fact-checked very carefully. Um, and that is, a, that is a, you know, still a legacy media value. Most magazines I write for and, uh, and newspapers I write for insist that you back up your assertions. Um, that's not true on Fox News, and it's not true, you know, in many places in the media. Um, and then there is the virtue, there is the ethic of fairness, um, that even if you're going to write a takedown of Monsanto, say, as, as I've done, you need to present their case 
as in a way that they would recognize and claim as fair. Um, that has to be part of what you're doing, even if you proceed to then take it apart. Um, so accuracy and fairness are the last, uh, you know, uh, barriers to complete insanity, I think. Um, and, um, but, and, and part of the problem with the internet and Facebook is that people don't have a way of, of, of knowing whether the information has been subjected to those two values or not. Uh, obviously, you know, Facebook has decided that doesn't matter. Um, and so, you know, rumor, um, circulates, you know, when you, when you turned on NBC news or opened up the New York times, that was the frame for that information. And you knew something about its quality. Yep. I'm not saying it was perfect in any, by any means. Um, but when you open up something that someone sent to you or that you saw tweeted or that you saw on Facebook. It sounds like a um, real phone, like a, not, not a cell phone. It wow. looks the same. It looks like information. It's written in declarative sentences. <laughs> it, it has quotes. It, it, you know, it has all the, uh, all the features of journalism, but it's not journalism. Uh, it may be disinformation you know, created by a Russian bot, um, but how do you tell that apart? Um, so there's this kind of leveling of all information and, you know, it seemed like a good idea once to dethrone these gatekeepers and there were problems with having gatekeepers. Um, but I think we're now realizing what we lost in the process and, Mm -hmm. and what we lost may have been the foundation of democracy. Dark note to, uh, to end on, but but uh, you know i don't have i don't have any solutions um uh you know it's a- except to do the kind of journalism i think is important and and teach other people to do it i mean i'm a teacher i spend a lot of my time teaching young journalists uh and hopefully to to you know keep those those values alive otherwise it's just a free for all yeah i just read the quote um you said psychedelics are wonderful to the point of being terrifying. And uh, I think that's kind of a, a, a really apropos point to end on um, because we've talked about some wonderful things and, and we've talked about some terrifying things. So <laughs> one, one last question for you, which is, um, if you don't mind sharing, what, uh, what is next in, in the world of Michael Pollan and what is the next subject for, for you to drill down on, do you know? Yeah, I'm still kind of working out what my next book is going to be about. Uh, I, I'm not ready to really talk about that. Um, a big focus of my life right now is is this um, Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. I'm putting a lot of effort into uh, getting that uh, off the ground. I think yeah. beyond the clinical applications that are so uh, important and relieving human suffering, as I think we now have good evidence psychedelics can do, they have the potential to teach us a great many other things if we can do the kind of research we need. And that research is not just going to be doctors and therapists. That's going to be neuroscientists understanding brain mechanisms. It's going to be social scientists understanding behavior change. Um, It's going to be work in the humanities. It's going to be storytelling. So um, I'm hoping to build an institution where a lot of that work can take place. Um, So right now that's my, you know, if I, if I have a further contribution to this field, it's going to be through that, um, the Berkeley Center. I think that's fantastic. I think I actually got an email from someone. Are you recruiting for an executive director right now? We are actually. And yeah. if anyone has good ideas, uh, yes, we need an executive director. And we also have launched a new newsletter. And if you want to stay up with uh, events 
in the field, a weekly digest. Um, it's called the, the Microdose. It's on Substack. It comes out every Friday, and it's very brief hits uh, that tell you what's going on, what's been written that week about psychedelics. So it's a really efficient way to stay in touch. Uh, and then on Mondays, there's a second installment, which is an interview with a, uh, five questions for a newsmaker in the field. And those have been really interesting too. So, and that's totally free. Um, so I encourage people to, uh, to check out the microdose. Awesome. I'm going to actually ask you one final question, which is, are you optimistic for the future? Are you cautious? Are you both? How are you feeling? You know, I am by temperament an optimist. I think it's important to, to, uh, to, to state that up front. I think a lot of our attitudes toward the future are hardwired into our temperament and temperament is something yep. you're born with. That said, I'm more worried than I've ever been. <laughs> so, uh, there's just some, you know, some, you know, really worrisome trends. Um, our, our species, we have not demonstrated with COVID that we can deal with a crisis that is more imminent more vivid, more immediately threatening than climate change. And we fucked that one up uh, pretty yeah. royally. And, uh, and now, you know, there's another one coming. And um, uh, so can we, I, I know, I know that things are falling apart at every moment in history. And it is a very common uh, emotion, but I think the threats we face are of, of, a, of a very serious order, uh, more serious. I mean, they're planetary. They're, you know, they're civilizational, not just national. Um, yeah. And so uh, I don't, I mean, I'm sorry to leave you uh, on that note. Um, you know, we may surprise ourselves. I hope we do. I, I think it's not an accident that psychedelics are having their moment right, right now. Uh, they may be uh, a tool to help with the kind of, you know, creativity, um, and egolessness we need. Let, let, let's hope that let's hope they're up to the, the task before us. I think that's a really wonderful note to end on. And, uh, you know, maybe coming out of this specific podcast, people will be able to look through the world or look at the world through the lens of a little bit of Michael Pollan. And I think that would go a long way to help things uh, positively as well. So with that, thank you, Michael. Thank you for making the time. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for all you do. Uh, it, uh, you know, I definitely think the world is a more thoughtful and, and conscientious place for for all the books that you've written on very important subjects. So just a note of gratitude for oh, you doing you, what you Ronan. do. I, I really appreciate your words. A pleasure talking to you as usual. In This Is Your Mind on Plants, Michael mentions that psychedelics are, quote, wonderful to the point of being terrifying. And coming out of today's conversation, I have never believed that more. My experiences on psychedelics have consistently been wonderful, insightful, enlivening, challenging, exhilarating. They do, in my opinion, and an opinion that's been backed up by dedicating my career, my success, and my reputation on it, hold the potential to be a real catalyst for alleviating human suffering and helping humans elevate their consciousness and put us on a path to addressing some of civilization's most vexing problems. However, to the extent that psychedelics are just amplifiers for beliefs that we already hold in a world where truthiness, in the words of Stephen Colbert, is the closest we are going to get to objective truth, I can see how the psychedelic renaissance is also terrifying. But I'm not going to give up hope. The people I've met in this psychedelic renaissance are powered by the right motives. 
The results I've experienced firsthand and witnessed in the people we've helped at Field Trip are real. But the real source of my hope I carry is in having had an insight while reading This Is Your Mind on Plants, lying next to my sleeping three-year-old son, Cohen. As I read about how Michael's wife, Judith, let go of the sins of her father, I started to reflect on how I hadn't been there for Cohen nearly as much as I'd like. That I'd never really told him just how great and amazing and wonderful he was. And that helped me understand things about myself. In that moment, I realized that psychedelics have been with us throughout human history in the form of children. Like psychedelic drugs, children take what we give them and give us exactly what we need, whether we know it or not. Children bring us together, make us feel more connected, give us hope and purpose and love. They shine a mirror on who we are and what we've been through. They always have and they always will. And so whether this modern renaissance with psychedelic drugs continues and delivers the promise that we hope, we will always have the potential to tap into what they offer simply by looking at our children. The path there may not always be easy, but if you look around, you'll see we've got exactly what we need to get there. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast that's dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy. Our producers are Conrad Page and Harley Roman, and associate producers are Sharon Bella, Alex Sherman, Macy Baker, and Tyler Newbold. Special thanks to Cast Media, and of course, many thanks to Michael Pollan for joining us today. And you should think about picking up one of his books. It could dramatically shift how you see the world. How to Change Your Mind has certainly brought psychedelics into the forefront for many people, and his new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, dives deep into how amazing molecules in plants like opium, caffeine, and mescaline can shift our consciousness and our societies in so many powerful ways. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Click the subscribe button to my left to never miss a release and click here to check out past episodes. See you next week.